Welcome to this episode of Creative Mind. I'm your host, Bobby Brill. And this sonic soundscape was brought to you by music. And please, if you're still listening, I will stop. But yes, this episode is all about sonic landscapes, soundscapes, orchestral arrangements, the bleep blap bloops that you hear in video games. All of this is part of music production and sound design for visual media. And in this episode, we sit down and talk with Brad Hughes, the director of the School of Music Production and Sound Design for Visual Media. I know it's a mouthful, but it really covers all that's going on in the world of audio today. And Brad Hughes is the perfect expert for this. He is a voting member of the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. So for the tone deaf like me, that's the Grammy Awards. And he's been, and his career goes all the way back to being a sessions man in LA, working on TV and film, to, to video games and toys. And Brad really brings a unique perspective into the world of being a working artist and having an artistic and creative career. So definitely take some notes and enjoy this episode of Creative Mind. Brad Hughes, the department director of MUS. What does MUS stand for? MUS is the three-letter acronym for our department code, but officially we're known as the School of Music Production and Sound Design for Visual Media, which is the longest name of any department at the school, but we had to get it all in there. And that covers quite a bit. It's not instrumentation. It's not teaching guitar or anything like that. That's correct. Yeah, that's an important distinction to make. And this relates to the whole concept of what the department is all about and what we teach. We are not a conservatory. We don't do instrumental performance. We don't do ensembles. We're very much focused on composition and music production and audio production with contemporary computer-based tools that we use to do that. That almost looks like this is the job you're going to do. And the guitar player is that, that hope and that dream. What we do is we try to encourage students who play or sing or whatever, we encourage that development alongside what we're teaching them about production because a philosophical underpinning of the whole department and what we do is that the computer-based workflows that are available now to a person, you know, who's not a recording engineer vis-a-vis, you know, a computer and some software and getting audio in and out of the computer, it's incredibly empowering. So you can create a lot of, you know, really very professional, polished sounding music kind of from your bedroom studio. And that's empowering and really, really super cool. So what we're doing is we're teaching students how to do that. And then whatever talent they're bringing in, whether it's as a vocalist or as a, you know, guitar player or whatever, we're encouraging them to continue to develop that talent you know, along the side, even though we're not, you know, teaching them how to be a better singer per se, but we're teaching them how to record properly. We're teaching them how to get that sound that they want to hear because they hear it on their favorite song or, you know, why drums sound a certain way. And, you know, we're teaching all of that stuff. It does seem like that's almost like this is the perfect time for people to think about music composition where you were saying you you can do this on your laptop anywhere. This is not a skill where you have to be coming to a school brick and mortar. You can do this online. This translates really well to online. I think percentage-wise, you know, we're about 25, 30% online and the rest are on campus because, you know, a lot of students, they do want to get into a physical recording studio space and, you know, be in that environment. Just to back up for a second, 
the whole concept of recording music used to involve booking a recording studio, a brick and mortar place. You had to go in, you had to have a band or you had to have the thing ready to go. Yeah. They had to argue about mic placement and the sound of the wood. Yeah. And then you had to pay an engineer to be there all day long and record and hopefully get a good take of it and all of that stuff. What's really happened is what we call the Project Studio Revolution, where the access to the means of technology to record and edit and mix music has been wildly democratized in the last 20 years and is now available to you know anyone that can get a personal computer and some software and some training under their belt. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm recording on a, a little Zoom and we're talking over Zoom software. So it's it's not like, uh, you know, the, wor the world is a lot smaller than it used to be for sure. Yeah. It's kind of a message of empowerment. Just because you have software on a computer doesn't mean you're a great musician. No, of course not. There's still a lot of skill involved and we teach all of the things about music composition and production. And the main thing is that people who want to be in this industry, in the music creation universe, uh, whether it's for a film or for a game or just for their own edification or making a song. The skills that are required to do that, it's not just about being a good composer anymore and sitting at a piano and writing some music on music paper. Now people are expected in the industry, the composer is expected to make their own demo. Oh my gosh. Right? Like if I'm scoring a film and you're the film director and you say, okay, I'm coming over to hear, you know, how you're doing and whether I like, you know, the music that you're doing. When you come over to my house, the expectation is you will hear a fully realized demo that will either be representative of exactly what it's going to be like in the final mix for the film or a very close approximation of it, which will then be recorded by a, perhaps a small symphony orchestra. Oh my gosh. So no, no little, here's a little bit here. Here's a couple bars here. Tell no. me what you think. The expectation of the industry, again, just to connect the training that we do to getting a job in the industry is the expectation for composers is so much higher now than it ever used to be. It's not just coming over and, you know, here, let me play you the theme on the piano and you can kind of envision what it'll be like. No. Now, you know, hold on. Let me, you know, orchestrate this melody. Let me do it in MIDI. You know, we've got virtual instruments, we call them, which are the sampled instruments that live in our computers. I've got a symphony orchestra living inside my computer. So that skill of not just composing and, and having a musical composition that makes sense, now the production and the recording and the mixing and the delivery of that music to the final destination has fallen more into the hands of the composer now as well. And how, how long ago was that shift from sitting down, playing the music, going to write it out? You know, we've all seen in movies the da-da-da, no. No, I don't like that either. Yeah. Into, okay, I'll email you the file and go nuts, tell me yes or no. I'd say the probably the birth of sampling in the late 80s and the early 90s is when, you know, technology companies began creating products that were marketed to composers and musicians where you could say to them, here, if you buy this piece of hardware with, you know, this much memory on it, we can store audio samples of, say, strings or audio samples of drums or whatever. Early adopters of this, I'd say early 90s to mid 90s was when it really, really took off. You have to understand this from an economic perspective of production. Let's say you're producing a weekly TV show in Los Angeles in Hollywood. You've got a budget for your music weekly. Your budget is a couple hundred thousand dollars, maybe. That's to pay the composer, to pay the recording studio, to pay the musicians to come in and record the score that goes on the TV show every week, etc. It's expensive, and you know that's how it was done for many, 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 many years in the industry. Union guys, session guys. Sure. 
I was in the union in LA. I was one of these guys. And yeah, it's a musician's union gig. And, you know, there's two, three hour sessions a day, 10 to one lunch break, and then two to five. Yeah, absolutely. So now fast forward, sampling technology comes along. Companies start making products where it's like, well, listen, string orchestras are expensive. Recording studios that are big enough to record them are expensive. I've got a composer over here who has invested, you know, a few thousand bucks in these samplers and they sound good enough for my background tracks on my cop show that I'm doing, you know, or whatever. (laughs) And then the composer comes to the producer and says, well, listen, you're spending $200,000 a week or whatever on your music budget. I'll do it for a hundred thousand. I'll cut your production costs for music by 50%. And I'll do everything myself, and I'll just deliver the files to you, right to your audio mixer, who can drop them into the mix with the dialogue and the sound effects and everything like that. How does that sound to you? And the producer goes, well, I don't know. Is it going to sound as good as my real music? And the guy goes, here's a demo. And the producer listens and goes, wow, sounds great. Okay. I love saving $100,000. Right. It's funny. You joke, but I mean, how many cop shows are there? Other shows where I'm sure the students learn there's the music, there's the dialogue, there's the atmosphere, there's the gunshot, there's the car door slam, there's the lights, there's 19 other layers on top of it. That's right. You know, a musician has to think about, but somebody that may not be the greatest musician ever, but really trying to be good can cut through the, the static, so to speak. Well, that's sort of the art of composing for a visual media, like a film or a TV show, where you know there's going to be dialogue. Your music is going to be underneath dialogue or supporting some kind of narrative drama or whatever's going on. That's the artistry, you know, that comes with it. There's a lot to learn there. But just to circle back to your question, that was the beginning of it was like the 90s when composers started using samples and not using real players, which has happened before in the industry. And, you know, if the budget's big enough, they'll still hire the real players. And that's when it obviously is the best. You can have a real symphony orchestra. Nothing will ever sound as good as that. But, you know, the quality of the audio samples now where we are in 2020 and the amount of sonic, you know, palette that is available to someone vis-a-vis these plug-in, you know, things and samplers and all of that that are all now in software, not hardware. It's a universe of sounds. It's a universe of sounds. And the quality's gone up. The cost has come down. So, you know, this this is the world we're living in. There are players that are still recording in L.A., doing, you know, live sessions, and that's still always the best way to go. But it costs money. And so, you know, a lot of this comes down to money, and it's the intersection of art and commerce. (laughs) The uh, how much money you got and uh, do you want to work today or not? I was just lecturing on this the other day to my seniors who are in a class that I teach called Demo Reel, which is, hey, you guys, you're about to graduate, go out in the world here. And, you know, I'm helping them work on a demo reel for a portfolio for their stuff. And I was lecturing about that very topic, about how the allocation of the entire film's budget for music and sound production is like, you know, 5%, right? 7% (laughs) of the whole pie. Yeah. So if you're working on a little indie film and they say, well, I've got, you know, 5,000 bucks is the total thing for music that's paying you, that's the recording sessions, that's everything. I just need you to do the music and deliver it to me. You go, okay, well, I guess I better not book like three orchestral recording sessions with 85 players each because you're going to burn that in about a minute and a half. Right. (laughs) And it's funny, you know, I grew up in LA and I worked on a lot of independent film and I worked on some TV shows and it was always like the boom op who is probably the second most important guy to getting the 
gist of the scene, because it can be great, but if you can't hear what the person's saying, it doesn't matter, gets yeah. the lowest pay. Unfortunately, yeah, well, that just comes with the territory. But people are coming around, and over the years, you know, that's changed a little bit, and they're very much, uh, we teach this a lot in our classes, of course, they're so integrated. You know, George Lucas famously said, sound is 50% of the motion picture experience. And, you know, when a guy like George Lucas says that, that's great because people listen. And there's a lot of incredible artistry. And again, what I love about this field is that it's such an interesting and intellectually stimulating combination of artistry and technology, because there is some technical know-how involved. But the results that you're creating are so artistic and contribute so much to the storytelling. Even instrumental music can be a storytelling unto itself. I, I have watched you guys do a little of the composing, and it seems like a very subtle art. It's just a little yeah. bit here, a little there, and you're like, I don't hear anything. And then you watch the final mix, you're like, oh, those little dun-dun-dun, that, that rise and swell of everything. You're like, yes. oh. I mean, horror movies, I think, are the perfect example where the story's terrible, the acting is terrible, the makeups are okay, but without so a really good music composition under it, it's just a camera shaking around and red ketchup being thrown at you. Absolutely. Music is the signifier. Music is communicating the emotional information to the audience about what the intent of the director usually or the producer is uh, saying. We teach this a lot. We spend a lot of time talking about this. It only takes a little bit, just a little bit of a short music cue, a, not a very complicated giant orchestral thing, just one little note can actually just deliver that emotion that transforms the scene. We teach functions of film scoring in one of the classes that I have, and one of the functions of film scoring is called creating unspoken thoughts of the character or unseen implications of the situation, which is one of my favorites, and I love that because it's like just the look of the actor looking off into the distance or whatever. But then the music is the thing that's communicating what is going on inside that character's oh, wow. head, right? And what they're thinking. One of the exercises we do, again, in our curriculum, we take the exact same scene from a clip or movie or whatever, and we have one kind of music in there, and then we flip it and we do the exact same scene. Nothing else changes, but we change the music and the tone and the emotional you know, content of the whole thing just flips 180 degrees. Oh, wow. Before we get deep into the school... How how did you come into the composing side of this? I mean, did you start off as a musician or as a composer or were you, you know, I mean, I'm you were in a high school band, I'm I'm assuming at some point. I was. Absolutely. Yeah. I came at it from the perspective of a player. I started off as a player and then the composing and the producing and all that came later. Where did you start playing? What was the first instrument? School band, Sacramento, California, my hometown. Okay. Band teacher comes around recruiting kids for the band. Like, we need kids for the band. Band teacher comes around and demos, like, a few of the different instruments in the band. Literally, does anybody want to come <laughs> join the band? They sit down and they play a little trumpet. They play a little tuba. They play a little clarinet, little flute, whatever. And for some reason, the clarinet really, like, spoke to me in that moment. I remember it was fourth grade. And I was like, that's a cool one. That sounds really cool. And it's like black and it's got silver keys on it. It just looks really cool. So I said, I'll join. I want to join the band. And we rented a clarinet from the local music store. It's literally just small town kind of band geek story. I started taking lessons, took to it like a duck to water, loved it, had a lot of like positive reinforcement success early on. Oh, you that's know? great. Like, which is really key and really important and something I still try to deliver to all of our students now because yeah, school band. 
I was got in the band. I, started, I was playing with other students like, hey, this is fun. And like, I liked being in the middle of the band that was making all this music, you know? So I learned to read music. That was key. So you'd start studying. I took lessons with a private teacher as well, just to reinforce what I was learning in band in school. Oh, wow. Your, your parents were really supportive of you. They, they, went, they went full tilt. They were very supportive. Yeah. I think they saw that something about this was lighting a fire in me. I think I just, I really took to it and I enjoyed it. And it does require practice. As an instrumentalist, if you take on an instrument, it requires a focused practice to get better. End of story, right? Now, for me, though, I was always very comfortable with that. I would go to my little room above our garage and close the door and just work on the music. And I was kind of content doing that. So that's a key thing. Whatever you're getting from that process has to be positive enough that you can stick with it. So I did. And I started growing and growing and growing and more and more. And then from clarinet, that was grade school. And then I went to saxophone after that because saxophone was just, I don't know, cooler. I was going to say, <laughs> saxophone is cooler. I mean, clarinet's cool. It has a great sound. And you have to, you know, when you listen, you're like, okay, I get it. But yeah, yeah sax is cool. It even sounds cool. It does cool. sound cool. You know, I'm a sax And the reason player. why is because I was, there's the junior high school above us, like the seventh and eighth graders above us had a jazz band. They called ah. it stage band. Oh, okay. Stage band, right? And they would, they came to our, you know, podunk little elementary school where I was playing clarinet in the concert band and they put on a little concert, you know, like it was like an assembly or something, you know, and they're like, oh, please welcome from Jonas Salk Junior High School, the big kids, you know, <laughs> and these guys started playing. Now, first of all, they didn't look anything like our band. They had a girl bass player. Oh, wow. Which I thought was the coolest thing of all yeah. time. Electric bass. Wow. Electric bass. That is, that, that's pretty hot. And I was like, like a Fender Rhodes piano. They had a drum kit. They had these really cool blue shirts and black vests. They started playing a song, and I'll never forget this. The, the song they started playing was Herbie Hancock's Watermelon Man. Oh, man. Which is this great classic funky jazz song, yeah, right? Yeah, they, they were not screwing around. Not screwing around. And they sounded great. And I was like, okay, hold on a second. And I literally, this is a true story, I literally went to my band director and I said, excuse me, how do I get into that band? When I go to junior high school, how do I get into that band? I don't see any clarinets in that band. What's up? How do I get into that band? And my teacher goes literally, well, you should probably try saxophone. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, thank you. The whole time he's probably going, I got him. I got another one into the fold. Totally true. Yeah. So I was hooked. And then I like graduated to saxophone and rented one from our local music store. Again, parents, very supportive. And I got into that same band. I got to junior high school and then it just, you know. I was hooked after that. It was no looking back. And so uh, did you play in any bands outside of the school band? Was there, you know, the garage band with the three guys desperately trying to play jazz and totally. not look terrible? <laughs> yeah. Had kind of a musical street. Like I was lucky that the street I grew up on had some other kids who were my age also in school who also were in band. So I think we even actually had like a little band for the 4th of July block party picnic one year. Oh, that's so, that's so cool. Yeah, it was literally, the name of my street was Treehouse Lane, and we called ourselves the T-Street Band. Oh, very <laughs> hip. <laughs> we made t-shirts, you know, the front of the drum, you know, we made a logo, and the whole nine yards. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we had some garage <laughs> stuff going on, lots of jamming, trying to figure this whole thing out. Like a lot of people, you know, blues and jazz is the thing we want to be totally immersed in. 
And, yeah. And, you know, I have my picture with B.B. King that I was when I was photographing band. So, you know, that sits there, makes me look cool, even though I could not play a lick to save my life. What is it about or what was it about jazz for you that was just like, OK, I'm going to do this? I think my parents and my parents, friends and stuff were like, oh, you ever heard that guy in the Bruce Springsteen band? You know, uh, <laughs> Clarence Clemens, who had that rock and roll oh, kind of yeah. raspy, da, 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 yeah. da, 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 you know, and I'm like. Yeah, I get it. And, you know, no disrespect. It just wasn't my thing. I was, it was into more of the jazz players, you know. Okay. I, I, later on, I came to really, really respect Clarence a lot in the E Street Band. So that's another kind of saxophone playing. Right. But you sort of learn, like, okay, this is the instrument I chose. And now here's kind of where it can be applied in the musical universe, you know. Jazz for me, I loved the chords, the harmony. You know, and like in my first jazz band, I would just, you know, being in a saxophone section with five other, you know, four other players and voicing a chord across five saxophones to me is just like the most exciting thing in the world. It just sounds so beautiful because it's a monophonic instrument, right? You only play one note at a time. Okay. It's okay. not piano. Okay. That's a polyphonic instrument. Monophonic, one note at a time. So, you know, that's, that's a different kind of approach for me. You know, smooth jazz was was a thing for me. Like my age, uh, you know, born in 1965, that kind of smooth jazz was in the sweet spot of me being like 13, 14, okay. 15 okay. years old and trying to figure this stuff out. So that's where it started, I think. A little fusion, a little weather report. Yeah, I was going to say, you know? You, know, that, you know, you said Herbie Hancock and there was that, I remember that dip into the 80s where, you know, a lot of people had jazz bands or wind yeah. instruments started really coming into that rock Seen even the Stones, you yeah, know, their big, big, big jazz or big uh, brass section for a lot of their horn stuff. sections, man. Oh my gosh, yeah, horn sections. Earth, Wind, and Fire was big. The band Chicago was also big. You know, these sounds got in my ear really, really quickly. But then I had a a jazz conversion moment when I was home listening. You know, and I and somehow into my universe came a recording of a John Coltrane record called Blue Train. Blue Train. Still have the original album in my house on vinyl. And I put this thing on and I don't know what came out of the speakers that day, but I, I knew it was different than anything else I'd ever heard. And I was transfixed. I said, I have no idea what is going on with this music, but I just know that I love it. So that was kind of the beginning of the, what I would call the more, you know, serious, you know, jazz bop post bop so, hard bop so did that was that the decision where now i'm gonna go to college and this is gonna be for real you know it kind of was yeah it was interesting one of my private teachers in sacramento kind of steered me away from majoring in music in college which i think was <laughs> terrible advice but i i think the thinking there was that you know, for playing, for being in the career of it, it's either you can play or you can't play. And just, you know, it, whether you have a degree or not doesn't matter. For players, that might or may not be true. For composers and producers, though, the training and the experience like we provide is, is just crucial. Yeah, because you, you do need that person to kind of slightly write your hand, slightly just kind of give you the nudge you're needing or that pat oh my on gosh. the back. Yes. To just know, yeah, it's going to suck right now. But it's going to get better. You'll be fine. Yeah, Don't that's worry. right. That's right. So I was hooked. I, I went off to college and, you know, just you know, took all the major classes in college. And I think it was actually an English major my first, my freshman year in college. I was like, you know, I'll continue to play and study and, and all of that. 
but then then I just I kept on hanging out in the music department anyway. All my friends were in the music department, you know. So then I actually graduated from UCLA with a degree in world arts and cultures, which was this super cool interdepartmental, you know, arts uh, a look arts sampler platter, Dr- I guess. A, a drum circle one semester, I'm assuming. Probably, yeah, yeah. For one class, I had to choreograph and perform an original dance. Okay. Which, uh, thankfully, video of that does not exist. It, it, it doesn't exist. You know, you didn't go and perform right down there in Westwood in front of the Fox Theater. And no. Just, okay, everybody. It's <laughs> no, nine o'clock. No, no, no. It's Saturday. I know you're waiting in line for your movie, but here's my interpretive dance. So I was hanging out a lot in LA, going out, you know, just networking and just finding people to play with and, you know, kind of learning on my own. And I was uh, studying privately too. I did, I took a teacher in LA who was a real old school 1950s, like LA Central Avenue bona fide jazz guy who was also a great studio session player. His name was Bill Green, one of my greatest teachers. And this is the guy where, like, when Sarah Vaughn would come to LA and perform at the Hollywood Bowl and put together a band, he would get the call to be in the sax Holy section. Holy cow. This, yeah. guy, this guy talks, you're, you're, you're taking notes. Yeah, and he was a highly influential teacher for me. So I was studying with him immediately starting when I was, you know, what, 18, 19 years old as a freshman in college when I got down there. I just, you know, found him. And that's when I started really getting my eyes focused on, well, wait a minute, there's, all, there's a whole network of like musicians that perform, they do jazz gigs at night, but they make a living playing on TV and film soundtracks and stuff like that during the day. That's perfect. That's what I want to do. I, I, I want to be that guy. And, that, you know? and that's, that's the life of a sessions player. Correct. A session musician. Okay. Yep. So explain that to me. If you're into music, you watch a lot of documentaries and you hear all the fun stories and, and yeah. you know, all the 70s and 80s and how, how, how crazy and wild it was. But what's a session mean? I, again, you're, you're like a hired gun, you know? Like somebody has a need to create a musical performance and you need to have X number of musicians in order to do it. This has been happening, you know, since the early days when we had silent films, we had organ or piano players playing along with silent films to have a music soundtrack. Then when the invention of audio recording happened, then we started recording, you know, dialogue and sound for movies, but we also started recording the music. And there was a whole infrastructure of like live players that would perform for, you know, screenings of movies when they were silent. And those guys were all now out of work, right? But in L.A., if you could get yourself to L.A., you could be one of the musicians that was on the original recording of the music that got recorded for the movie in the first place. That's kind of the birth of what came to be known as the session musician. Then the whole industry around film and television, not to mention record making, just music making, right? People making records. There's a long history of, you know, a principal, maybe a ranger or composer who's working with a singer, for example. You're working with a singer and the singer is just the singer. But there's somebody, you know, else working with them to create the arrangements and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then you would hire musicians to come in and do the recording because you need a guitar player, you need a bass player, you need drums, you know, you need all these foundational things. And that's really what a session player is. A session player comes in and plays whatever is put in front of them or is called upon to creatively improvise and think of, you know, a part that they can contribute to the recording that will make it great. And, and that's really what a session player does. That, that, that's a lot to ask of one person. That's, wow. I mean, that, that, you guys have to be top of your game all the time. 
it is a lot to ask, and there's there are requisite skills that are required in order to be able to do that. One of them is to be able to read anything, like music notation-wise, right? Just like the ace, especially as a horn player, because mostly we read parts. A piano player or a guitar player, for example, they can come in and and maybe the producer just says, "Here's an idea. Let's riff on this for a while and let's come up with something." Right. Right. I mean, I've seen like the the the, the pedal steel guys on Nashville stuff. They just kind of come in and just throw yeah. a little spice and take their check and go. There's a lot of improvisation that happens. As a horn player, my perspective is slightly different, only because we were expected to be ace readers and just read whatever was put in front of us by the arranger or composer. You know, if you're the arranger or the composer, you're sometimes the one doing the writing. But for me, my background was as a performer and as a reader and as a player where I'd come in and just read anything put in front of me. Or then you'd read read the notes and then there would be a section with chord changes where you're like, okay, sax solo, go, you know, then you improvise. Then you just improvise on something. Right. Because I mean, and that's you, like you had said that that sax is, is monosymphonic, correct? You yeah. Monophonic, monophonic. Meaning it's monophonic. One, monophonic. So yeah, if you're one, off you're off. You know, you're, if it's a bad sax note, yeah. it cuts through the entire room real quick. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I literally remember my first serious like recording session in LA that I got paid for. And it was for the music for a Japanese TV commercial. I don't know why, but some, you know, these producers who were making music for a Japanese TV commercial, they wanted like a 1950s American rock and roll kind of a vibe for their, you know, coffee commercial or whatever it was. <laughs> Don't ask me why. I have no idea. But I got the call and I came in and they're like, okay, we want some like honking 1950s rockabilly kind of, you know, Bill Haley and the Comets saxophone type of thing. And I'm like, oh, darn. I thought it was going to be that jazz gig. Oh, well, you know, too bad. Yeah. So this is the high pressure situation because the record light is on. You got a room, a control room full of people on the other side of the glass and you're just out there by yourself, just alone. Oh, my. Oh, you know, wow. or maybe, maybe there's, maybe the band is with you over on the side. But they're looking at you going, okay, sax solo, ready? Go. Oh, man. And, you no know, pressure. <laughs> it's do or die. And your reputation and your career as a player is built upon that first experience and then the next one and the next one and the next one. The most successful session players are the, you know, the ones that are kind of legendary in the business, and they're the ones whose names you see on records all the time. And there, there must not be a lot of session players. There are not any more. It used to be very much a part of the infrastructure of the industry for both film and TV and, and uh, visual media, but also for the record industry. Bread and butter. But again, back to what I was talking about earlier, when sampling came along and composers and producers started using, you know, samplers for strings or drums, drummers had it the worst, you know, because drums. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sample drums. <laughs> we all know the 808 kick drum and, uh, you know, That's the, right. an entire genre of music built out of uh, that. That's right. It started drying up. And even for horn players, even though, you know, like sampled saxophone is notoriously terrible. Uh, so there are still players that are called, but it's like five guys, oh, maybe wow. four, maybe three, actually. And I think I know all of them. <laughs> so when I was coming and I was and I arrived in Los Angeles, like post graduation, we haven't talked about graduate school yet, but I went to music school full time for graduate school at CalArts, graduated with a master's degree in saxophone and, you know, per music performance. Stayed in L.A. and really, really took a run at the studio thing. Started getting calls, got on some TV shows, got on some film soundtracks and, you know, recorded at 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers and places like that. Started to meet these guys. And I got us very quickly. I, I understood where the bar was in terms of professional ability, you know, and I was there. 
but the there were guys that were 10 years, 15 years older than me who had been doing it for, you know, ever, who were still getting all the calls. And what happened was that when I got into the studio scene in like the early to mid 90s, I guess you'd say, in Los Angeles, that's when sampling was okay. really taking off so, and they were hiring less and less of those the, players. The belt was already tightening as you were coming. Correct. Okay. My timing could not have been worse. Okay. But name drop. Tell me, what were, what are some of the, the shows and, and movies you worked on? Oh, I don't think anybody would ever remember them. I, they're, they're, <laughs> they're so old. I, you know, I did a, a lot of things that were on PBS. I did a Japanese TV commercial. I played in the Jimmy Dorsey band. Okay. You remember Jimmy Dorsey? Yeah. So band leader jimmy dorsey is long gone of course but the 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 name lives yeah. on right and so they call it a ghost band okay i got hired on that band and we did a couple of tours i toured japan guam you know a, a bunch of islands i played with some of the guys in diana ross's band uh, on a couple of sessions there's no famous none of the none of the tv shows or films that i did are famous enough to survive <laughs> history you know i i lived in la and was doing that for about 10 years you know, and again, I had a pretty clear idea of what I was going for. And unfortunately, the industry did really shift when I got there. And there was less and less of this work available. Uh, one of the greatest music documentaries is called The Wrecking Crew, which is all about those session musicians that played on the Beach Boys records, the Phil Spector sessions, Ron, the Ronettes, you know, all of those classic 60s tracks. You know, people say like, oh, the Beach Boys music is so good. And it is really good. But you know, the the performance that you're hearing on Good Vibrations, you know, it's a drummer named Hal Blaine. And and in those days, they were invisible. They were supposed to be invisible. Nobody, you know, cared. You know, in the 70s and 80s was sort of the glory heyday of like the session players. I fell in love with all this. This was my bread and butter. I would be, you know, studying the back of album covers, you know, when I was a kid listening to these songs and admiring, knowing these names. And then I would get to LA and be like, Oh my gosh, that guy from that record that I saw on the Joni Mitchell Steely Dan record, he's playing at this club tonight. Look, Let's go it's see Waddy him. It's Wadi Look at him. Yes. <laughs> he's a real person. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then Branford Marsalis, who was a jazz saxophone player from the Marsalis family, you know, I was into him as a play as a jazz player and then Branford got hired on Sting's on uh, Sting's band uh, when Sting left the police. Mm. And he went out on his own. He put together a new custom band. Branford got the call. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Sting hired Branford Marsalis? That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so I, that was my dream yeah. gig. I wanted to like be I, – I, that that's when I wished. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this L.A. session thing for a while and see what I can do. And then invariably, I'm sure that Sting will call. <laughs> you know. Well, I'm sure you're in his Rolodex. <laughs> toward, toward the back, in the back there, behind a few others. Yeah. yeah. So let's take a quick break and let me ask you this question. Are you looking for the right school to get in-demand skills in creative industries? You are invited to our upcoming interactive online open house, where you can learn about our over 40 art and design programs, admissions, financial aid, campus life, and more. Our admissions team will also be available via online chat throughout the event to answer whatever questions you may have. RSVP today at academyart.edu slash podcast. And so what happened for me is that I had like a, a fly on the wall view of the entire inside of the industry for how music got made and how video or how a film and TV was happening, the music side and the soundtrack side starting getting involved in audio. And then eventually, you know, Los Angeles just stopped agreeing with me, yeah, you know, it can be and I just said, 
I don't know. It, maybe this is not going to go the way I thought it was going to go, and that's okay. So let's just see what else we can look at here. And, uh, you know, I'm a Northern California guy. So uh, I moved back up to NorCal to be closer to my family in Sacramento. My parents at that time were still alive, and they were there. And, and so I moved up to the Bay Area because San Francisco is awesome. You know, it's great up here. And I started getting involved in other kinds of audio work. I loved music. I was performing, recording, playing. And I just started looking for other things in the musical universe than studio musician. You know, I had some great experiences there, learned a ton, but never quite got to the place where it was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I can just coast on this for the rest of my life. You know, that wasn't happening. And I'm like, I still got to pay right. rent. But that, and that wasn't a difficult decision because I know that kind of change in life moment that happens to a lot of artistic people that we have, you know, that's going to happen a lot. Was yeah. it difficult or was it pretty painless? It, it was difficult. It's a transitional change for sure. And you're like, am I doing the right thing? Am I giving up on my dream? You know, all that kind of those kinds of conversations. But it expanded my viewpoint of what was possible. And I started looking at the bigger picture. You know, it's one thing to be focused on specific goals and have a laser focus. That's good. But there's also a time to expand your mind a little bit and be willing to consider other opportunities. And, and not let that talent go to waste. You guys... Right. I mean, you guys that can do it, it's like, I mean, how many noodling guitar players have you seen at a bowling alley on a Wednesday at midnight going, wow, you're really good. Why are you here? Sure. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. I was in New York one time and I went to a bar and I heard this bar band and I said to myself, you know, New York always has a reputation for having great, 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 great bands. Great bar bands and, yeah. and I'm like, oh my God, this is the best bar band I've ever heard. These guys are <laughs> shredding. <laughs> This is not just like some sloppy, you know, cover band. Like, what is going, wow. These guys are really good. They had this like big harmonica player guy. who's was like a front guy and they're awesome. Two months later, those guys got signed <laughs> and they did their first record. It was Traveler. Blues Traveler. Big guy harmonica player. Okay, I know, I know the time we're talking about. Like, and there he is. Shredding yeah. in this bar. Shredding. Oh, and I'm like, wow. So, you know, good cream rises to the top and I'm really good at playing sax and I'm really good at playing in a band. And I was able to continue doing that. It's just that I detached that from, I've got to be a session player, you know, and, and be on, because that literally dried up. It literally dried up. And, and unless I was willing to, you know, bump off one of the older guys that had been doing it for a while, <laughs> you know, they were, we're not, not the first, going anywhere. First, first I've heard anybody say that's like, yeah, you're not going to get a job until that guy dies. So yeah, chill out. And I knew these guys. I mean, I met them and I was like, I met, I've met some of my heroes, you know, you know, the theme from the Pink Panther. Uh -huh. The, the original the Mancini. Henry Mancini with, with his saxophone mm -hmm. okay. thing in there. Yep. I've met that saxophone player. His name is Plaz Johnson, and he was a friend of my teacher's, the guy I told you about who got called when Sarah okay. Vaughn yeah. would come and play yeah, the, Bill Green, know, in yeah. L.A. He was a friend of Bill Green's, and I'm at my lesson one day. You know, There's this guy outside the door, and Bill goes, oh, Brad, get the door. It's my friend Plaz. And I open the door, and it's Plaz Johnson. <laughs> Teeth, floor. And I'm like... Hello, it's an honor to meet you. How do you get that sound, you know, when you do this thing? And so, you know, I have 10 or 20 versions of that story of meeting heroes in the music world of saxophone and beyond, you know, from my time in L.A. So, I mean, I, I don't regret That's a single minute of it. It was just fantastic and really great. Did a couple of tours, you know, a couple of small tours. Uh, got to record on some of those big scoring stages and all of that. Did some sessions. It didn't connect for me where it's like, oh, okay, well, I'm just done. I'm going to, you know, crack open a cold one and celebrate the fact that I've, you know, 
you got to keep evolving and you got to keep moving on. So and so, how did that? So what did that lead to here in the Bay Area, which it's a very different creative scene. Very different. What was happening was internet. I mean, the, the internet explosion was happening, and I saw some interesting audio opportunities there. I started, you know, as a player, I've always, you know, gotten good at that and loved that craft, but I started getting really interested in the recording, editing, and mixing aspect of music and also audio in general. And this coincided with the fact that software programs were now being written for computers where you could record, edit, and mix and manipulate audio on a personal computer. And and I'm like, oh, well, this is really cool. I got to see what's going on with this. And there's got to be, and so I moved up here and some of the first work I did while continuing to play, of course, uh, was freelance audio editing for like CD-ROM magazines. Oh, wow. Remember oh, those? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah this, when the CD-ROM was going to take over the world. Exactly. Yeah. I got in with some guys up here that were producing titles and they're like, gosh, can you, we need somebody to edit this audio. And I'm like, I can do that. I'll do that. No problem. Yeah, that, you know? that's, yeah it's, it is interesting. Some of the, that early multimedia content and deliverables. It was like, it, yes. it had to have a lot of music. It was like, we could put music to pictures and it's not video. It's something new. It's multimedia. Exactly. Yeah. So I started getting involved in that and really freelanced. I bounced around and got in touch with a lot of different small production companies up here in the Bay Area. And then uh, I set up a little home studio, you know, uh, and, and I started getting work. I got work from ironically, some companies in LA that I still was in contact with, I could do the work remotely and send the files over the internet. Like, (laughs) way, amazing. This this could really take off. I could work remotely now. (laughs) (laughs) There's a foreshadowing of things to come. So like I got hired by a company called the Hollywood Edge that does like, you know, sound effects libraries and all that. So I did a lot of editing of sound effects libraries. I did a lot of editing of uh, voice file, voiceover files, and you know, early multimedia kind of stuff. And I was just freelancing, bouncing around, and in a combination of music and audio-related freelance work was you know enough for me to be making rent. And more and more opportunities started coming on, though. And then not not all that long after I was up here, I got hooked up with a few few audio engineering gigs, you know, recording for small post-production houses. I saw the value in expanding my skill set. Just like saxophone hoping for Sting to call is not going to like probably where I should be spending all my life energy. Honey, did he call yet? No. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. So I started going, okay, well, let's let's see what else. And so I started to really think about diversifying my skill set. And then this computer audio thing happened. I'm like, oh, this is great. So you can do all kinds of cool, creative, interesting things. I was making little sonic landscapes on my own, you know. And then I got connected with a company that was doing music for toys, music and sound for toys. And these guys were some of the early pioneers of toy audio, electronic toys for children, where, you know, it had vo- a bunch of different voice right. files or, you know, the speak whatever. and say voice and, files. And then... The guy who founded the company, who's still a friend of mine, great guy, was involved in like the Tickle Me Elmo. Oh, Remember yeah. Tickle Me uh, Elmo? Yeah. So he was involved in that. And then he kind of branched off and formed kind of this own company. He was looking for people that had, you know, music and audio ability to work on his team to do music for toys. And we would contract with manufacturers like Hasbro and Mattel and, you know, those big game companies in New York who didn't have the in-house expertise to be able to do this. Oh, really? Interesting. But 
the market was really demanding it and they could see that there was there was now more because the chips that were going inside these toys were more capable there was more opportunity to have a richer audio right. experience yeah i interviewed for that job and it was like a little bit of music and a little bit of audio and i'm like this is perfect i'm this you know i've never dreamed i would work in the toy industry but i'll tell you a really important lesson that that taught me because it turned out to be a great job with great people you know and nice company for a few years the lesson is the skills of audio and music production, like we teach our students, are now applicable across a much, much wider spectrum of the entertainment media industry than, you know, anywhere else in time or in history. You know, like you said, you know, you have to develop your skill set. You've got to develop all the things you can do. You've got to evolve as it changes. You can't sit there and go, well, I only develop my film in a dark room in my house. Well, great. You and two other people are the only people right. going to get work. But hey, we want yeah. you to work on a on a toy. And you know, a lot of people are like, I don't want to work on toys. Well, how many Tickle Me Elmos did they sell? Yes. There will be more people who hear your Tickle Me Elmo work. Yeah. Than anything you've ever created. So true. And that sets up kind of how the future has gone in entertainment into video games and a lot of what the school's doing now, where it's like video games, esports, animation, that is not just a viable work or career. That is the new work that's going to be the future of all this. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why when I founded the department here. We called it music production and sound design for visual media because we wanted to be broad and encompass that ever expanding, you know, kind of entertainment media universe because the skills in the interest of, you know, training students to be successful and get jobs in the industry. I tell that toy job story all the time to my students because I'm like, hey, man, I was a jazz saxophone player, okay? <laughs> I've jammed with the guys in Diana Ross's band, and I was on tour, and I was, you know, waiting for Sting to call. and like, Honey, did he call? He just lost my number, that's did all. Did he call? He hasn't called you? Okay, all right. <laughs> but I said, you've got to look. I mean, I, I, I guess I could have gone and done something else and gone to law school or maybe or whatever, but I, I really love this stuff. You know, I love audio and recording and microphones and, you know, uh, and playing and music and all of that. So this stuff excites me, and 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 I was uh, thrilled to be able to find a way to continue to earn my living and you know make my monthly uh, rent and all that, and uh, do okay in a field that I was naturally interested in anyway. And I think that's the win, right? If you can do that and find employment, gainful employment, and you know make your living from something that's even remotely connected to stuff that you love, then you know that's a, a that's success. a pretty good life. Yeah. How did you transition into building this department here at the Academy? I was working at the toy job, and ironically enough, I, through a connection who still works here at the Academy, I was introduced to President Stevens, uh, the president of the university. And that connection was Michael Buffington. Michael, who works in game development and is a great Great artist. A, a former, another podcast guest. A great, yeah, great, amazing artist. Through a stroke of uh, what is now clearly uh, divine luck, Michael was hired to do some contract work for some game development stuff that we were doing down at the company that I worked at that did music for toys. Oh, interesting. So the company's called Creativity, and I was on the audio and music mm -hmm. team, but they're a growing company that had expanded into some game development and, and some other really exciting things. And they hired some artists to come in and do some you know, concept art. Michael was one of those guys that they hired. 
Now, Michael, I don't know if you talked about this in your podcast, but Michael is a closet music he, he's, guy. He, he's not in the closet <laughs> about it. He, he was like, right. he was like, oh yeah, and my album drops. I'm like, we'll get to that. Patience. <laughs> yeah. So Michael was actually working at the same company in the same building, and but because he would, he's a music guy, he would come and hang out with us in the music part of the. Building. Oh, cool. And he would just be like, "Hey, man, what's what are you guys working on? What's going on down here?" You know, and I'm like, "Oh, well, we're doing this, and you know, we're there's another composer, and so he's like, this is really cool, man. This is great. Okay, I go back to my, do my artwork, but you know, this is great. Anyway, long story short, Michael was doing some stuff at New Student Orientation where he would come out and say, "Hey, I went to school here too," but he knew President Stevens, and at that time they were looking for someone to help them with audio in the motion picture department. They really didn't have they had several people in the various aspects of film production, but there was no one dedicated to overseeing the audio part of that, the soundtrack side, which is so crucial and so important. And I think they were struggling with that. So they were seeking to bring someone in who could help with that. So I think they said, do you know anybody? And Michael said, uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, I just met somebody at my, the place where I work three days a week or whatever. <laughs> and uh, he's a good guy. Uh, maybe you can talk to him. Maybe he knows somebody. You know, then that's how it a happened. A testament and I, and to being a good person to work with. A good hang is much more important than sometimes the skill. That's right. Yeah. You know, to this day, I, mean, I bought Michael a beer one time and I'm like, hey, thank you for the introduction. You know, it's turned out to be a, a really rewarding and fun job for me to do. And I'm honored to do it. That's how the initial connection happened. And then uh, that led to a job offer from the university. And I was hired on the motion into the motion picture department as the guy who was overseeing sound. And then, but because I'm not just an audio guy, I'm actually a music person first. We branched off and decided to create a separate academic department that would not only address the needs of the motion picture department as far as sound goes, but also deal with music production, as I, I, we've been talking about. From what I've seen at the School of Music that's at the Academy now, what I've seen there, it's a lot different than what one would expect when they see a music department. I mean, it's got the keyboards, it's got the computers, it's got the booths, it's got the rooms, um, but it, the work that's being worked on, it's a lot of animation. It's a lot of gaming. It's a lot of very experimental creating stuff. And then the, the cinematic work. Um, is there a focus on what you're teaching or is there different channels for the type of orchestral work or is, or is it all the same? There is a focus. I mean, it's certainly the skills we're teaching, as I said earlier, are applicable across a lot of different kinds of areas. But the skills we're teaching because it's such a visual school and so much of the content in the other departments is of a visual nature. We are, you know, kind of in support of that. We're very much in support of that in crafting audio or music that is married with and married to and and combined with some kind of visual imagery or narrative storytelling in a visual medium, right? But there's got to be some differences. Like, how do you compose for a video game versus a student's cinematic film? Those two examples are very different. It's true. What we tell students is the skills you learn, and we teach you know music theory and composition and harmony and or you know music school stuff. We teach all of that so that music makes sense because you have to learn to speak the language of music before you can use it to tell stories. You know that's the way I like to do it. To answer your question specifically, between games and film, there's a dramatically important difference, and that is that film is a linear narrative experience. When you watch a film, it's going to be the same every single time you watch it when you start at the beginning and go to the end, right? 
And the music and the sounds and all the audio that goes with that will happen in the same place at the same time every single time you play it, okay? In a game, it is entirely variable because it depends on the interaction of the user who's playing the game. So it's what we call adaptive music or adaptive audio, which means I'm driving, I'm you know putting this character in this game, I've got my little joystick or my controller or whatever, I go down into my scary dungeon, if I turn to the left, it's going to trigger a certain set of music files or a certain set of audio files because of what's over there, like the monsters over on the left, you know? But if I turn to the right, which is the secret way out of the dungeon, then, you know, the music's going to be a little more happy and maybe uh, the sound effects are not so ominous, you know? So the trick in creating audio soundtracks and music scoring for a game environment is that it's interactive and adaptive. And you have to have multiple layers of sounds or music that are then triggered based upon the interaction of the person playing the game. Okay, so it, it, it's far more, it's not linear, as you said, and it's far more of a way of thinking interactively as you're doing it. So, I mean, that's got to be a bit of a mind scramble for some students or people just, anyone in music, if you've never done this kind of adaptive music it is. storytelling. It's, it's, it adds a few layers of complexity. I sort of uh, liken it to Mr. Spock playing three-dimensional okay. chess on Star okay. Trek. Okay. You know, it's a little bit like that because you're like, well, it, you know, what if, you know? Yeah, well, what if? You have to write multiple music cues for a situation, but the key is that you have to write them so that they can work together, like stacked on top of one another, which obviously is a compositional challenge. So you're you know, creating music that can be played together, one music file here, another music file here. So it, it just kind of depends. It is certainly a more complex thing you approach it in a different way so what's the path that a student's going to go through as they're taking this journey through that department what where does it begin and what's the at the end what's that real and what's that skill set they're coming out with well i think the journey is one of the first classes we have in the curriculum is called soundtrack industry overview okay. which is exactly <laughs> what it sounds like we do a little you know sampler platter of all these different things and this is what's going on with music we talk about what's adaptive audio like is that interesting to you okay well if that's interesting to you maybe you'd like to take this class so we have 10,000 foot flyover view of the industry for both sound design and for music in the first year. And then I think the classes are sequentially built. So we're, we're building a foundation and then building skill sets on top of that. Because again, back to the, what I said at the beginning of this conversation, the demands on the of the industry now for audio recordists and editors and music composers there are far more technical demands upon them than there used to be. So if you want to work in this industry, you have to be creative and you know learn how to manipulate and use audio and music elements. But you also have to be technically skilled to use the software, to record, to edit, to mix, to process audio in unique and interesting ways. It's, it's actually quite a big meal to digest. So what we do is we sequentially expose students to it throughout the curriculum so that by the time they get to their senior year, they have had an opportunity to kind of survey the landscape and then make an informed choice about which parts of it are the most exciting to them. One degree plan is music scoring. The other degree plan is sound design. And music production is sort of, you know, a little bit in the middle there. We're exposing students to more and more with each subsequent year. To answer your other question, what happens at the end, it's all about the portfolio. You know, we teach them how to do these things. We teach them the landscape of the, of the industry. And the fact that you can't put all your eggs in one basket and the, the sort of strategy of, you know, graduating and getting a job 
is be open to diversity of opportunities, you know? Uh, and I tell my toy job story. And I say, you know, the saxophone player who wanted to get hired, you know, to play with Sting ended up, you know, working for uh, music for toys. And, and that's great advice because I think a lot of people forget that in a creative learning environment, you're learning how to do something, but you're also not learning, okay, do this and you're done. That's exactly right. Yeah. This is not learning how to, you know, assemble a particular piece. And then when you get out of here and get hired, you do it exactly like you learned it in school. There's more creative interpretation to it, which I think is one of the things that makes it so exciting. And I also, you know, when I when I started this curriculum, I, I really looked at the landscape of what other universities that offered programs like this were doing. And I expressly tried to make us a unique choice in that, you know, landscape for students that are looking for, you're in high school, you're interested in music, you're interested in sound, you know, you're not really sure how you could ever make a living at that or whatever. You look at some programs and I wanted ours to be a unique and interesting choice. And I think that we've done that because we're kind of in between a traditional music school and an audio engineering school on the other side. You know, we're kind of like right in the middle of that spectrum. Uh, you have one foot in both ponds and being yeah. able to stay employed and being able to move forward. Musicians and sound designers are very closely related. And I tell students, look, you might get hired as the sound effects editor for a video game company or something. But then all of a sudden, you know, six weeks later, they're going to come in and go, hey, you know what? We really need somebody who has music editing ability because we've got these two music tracks and they don't really work together. Do you think you could edit these tracks together and see if you can find a way to make these work? And you go, yeah, I can totally do that. I did that for a final project in one of my classes. And then boom, you're instantly more valuable to that company because you're now, you know, you've put more skills into your uh, resume. And, and that's that, that creativity thing that I think a lot of people forget or, or never realize until they're knee deep into it, that a creative career lasts as long as you want it to. It can last your lifetime and you've got to be able to adapt and move. And, and if you want to have a, a career as a creative person, yeah, you, you need to know a lot of things and you want to be moving forward. And you know, what you did 10 years ago, you'll, you may never do again. Very true. Very true. It's, it's good career advice. It's one that I share with my seniors all the time. Be prepared to have many irons in the fire, you know, because that's creatively interesting and fun because you're not just doing one thing all the time. You know, and then maybe a few years of that, and then maybe you get you land a a gig where you know it's like, well, no, we just want you to be here and do this full time, and here's your office, and here's your computer, and all of that. One of our alumni who was a sound design major in our department graduated, went out there, started you know trying to get work, picked up some freelance work from Google, did some voice editing stuff for Google here in the Bay Area. And then subsequently was offered a full-time sound designer position at Facebook. Wow. wow. <laughs> and I said, congratulations. We're so happy for you. We actually brought her back. We gave her, a, we did a Distinguished Alumni Award for her a few years Who ago. Who is that? Her name is Sierra Sinclair. Yeah. Just a, a really, really sweet person. So great. Great student. Very creative. You know, did a lot of creative, interesting projects while she was a student here. And then, so there she goes and out in the industry, gets hired as a full-time sound designer at Facebook. And then when she came back to do uh, to join us for the uh, honorary award that we gave her as a distinguished alum, I said, "Well, so tell me about your office. How's how's the gig? I mean, are they taking good care of you? Are you happy? Is everything going okay?" And she was telling me that, like, yeah, it was great. I got hired, and they showed me into this really cool office room, and there was my computer, and and they said, 
if you need any software or anything at all to do your job, just put it on a list and we'll make sure that it's installed for you by tomorrow. You know, so <laughs> wow. it was a real red carpet. <laughs> but but then at situation. the same time, you're like, sound designer for Facebook. Is there sound there? And there is. There's sound there in is. so many things. Lots of little interactive sounds and, and plus a whole bunch of secret projects sure. she said were going on that she couldn't tell me about and all that jazz. But the point is the creativity and the diversity of skill set that, you know, she came out of our program with really, really served her well. Because like just like you said, Facebook, what I would never think to look for a sound design job at Facebook. But you know what? There's a large team of sound designers there and they're doing some really creative, interesting, innovative, cutting edge things that are connected to the emerging social media infrastructure that's happening all over the world. So which is being driven by what's happening in Silicon Valley at companies like Facebook. So to kind of wrap it up, tell me, you know, what is that one piece of advice you can give to students that they've come in, they've graduated, they've got their, well, you know, I'm showing my age, they don't have their CD in their hand anymore. They've got their link in an email <laughs> to send to people or their SoundCloud account right. or whatever. When they land that first job, because I don't like asking people for advice when you graduate because that changes all the time. But the more yeah. important advice of you land your first job, how do you not get fired? How do you not get fired? Well, that's a good question. My answer to that would be, you know, believe in yourself because you were hired for a reason, right? You've got your portfolio. You worked hard. You have some skills. Congratulations. But that is really step number one of the next phase of your life. So my advice is be humble. Ask a lot of questions, but don't be obtrusive. Listen and observe very, very carefully to everything that is going on around you and see how you can contribute to the success of that organization. What role can you play to add to the value of whatever organization has hired you, whatever company or whatever? What is your role in it? Because obviously they hired you for something. You're there for a reason. Make sure you have a clear understanding of why you got hired and what you're supposed to be doing there and then execute it flawlessly, number one. And number two, listen carefully, be open to what's going on around you and see how you can execute well and then think beyond your position. I think if you do that, then you become a valuable team member for whatever organization it is and you're a nice person and you, you treat people with respect, then I think you're going to do well no matter what field you're in. I remember I had an opportunity to talk with a guy named Randy Tom, who's the head of sound design at Skywalker Sound, which is the you know gold standard of film, audio, post-production in the world. And Randy's a great guy. A number of his protégés have, have taught in our department. And he was talking about this very issue. And he said, look, I might have two demo reels from two sound design graduates, and I'm looking for an assistant editor or something, you know. And they're both, you know, their resumes look good. I've listened to and watched their demo reels. They're both competent and capable. They can both use Pro Tools software or whatever it is. But which one of these people do I want to spend eight and a half hours a day in a tiny editing room with, you know? So that's why, and I can relate to this story because I, there was a, a game division of, Lu of Lucas called LucasArts yeah, for a right, while. Right. And I interviewed for a job there once and it came down to me and one other guy. And the last day of my interview was about a six-hour hang over lunch and ping pong. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow. I hope it's like this all the time. This is really cool, You're guys. you pay me you know? for this? Great. Yeah. That was the hang test. Mm, you know what I mean? 
That yeah. was like the okay, yeah, he's got he's got skills. That's fine. And this other guy's got skills. Let's hang with this guy. Let's hang with this guy, and let's see which one we like better. Uh, right. You know. So my advice there is: be a good person, treat people with kindness and respect, and think about how you can contribute to the larger goals of the organization. Well, there you have it. A little bit of information on really what it's about to be a working creative. How your career is about what you know how to do, what you learn how to do, and what you love doing. It's not just one thing at one point in time. It's the long haul. And those skills are very important to learn. And as more and more art and design career opportunities arise, employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and, of course, technically skilled creative professionals. At Academy of Art University, you will get the work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco and, of course, anywhere in the world with our online programs. So to request more information about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including audio production, game development, fashion, photography, even UX design, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash creativemind. And while you're there, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode of this podcast. And as always, thank you for listening.